2: day we are going to be talking to George Takei, uh, an actor best known for his role as Lieutenant Sulu on the original Star Trek, as well as a longtime human rights activist and spokesperson. He's the co-author right now of the just-released and on the New York Times bestseller list graphic memoir, They Called Us Enemy. Uh, he's also got a series that he'll be talking about a little bit later coming out uh, on, uh, on AMC, uh, a 10-part series uh, m- about more or less the same subject. He's got Two point nine million followers on Twitter, and I think like ten million followers on Facebook. So basically, at the age of eighty-two, he has more going on than he had when he was twenty-eight, uh, <laughs> and uh, that's a good, good, a good place to be. So, first of all, thank you so much for doing this.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me.
2: And and we're not going to be talking about Star Trek today. Although I would rem- <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't say that in nineteen sixty-six, I was in seventh grade. So. I mean, you still appear in my dreams from time to time. I was such a perfect target audience for Star Trek. Well,
1: you—I was your dream boy. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far, but
2: um, but maybe who knows? So, uh, what we are going to be talking about is they called us enemy. Uh, this is a graphic a memoir. Uh, it is about a very upsetting time in your life and a very upsetting time, a very bad time in the history of america i'm going to let you start out the story the story begins with you as a child I, th- I believe a child of 5 being awakened under frightening circumstances tell us what was happening
1: yes uh i had just turned 5 years old in on april 20th 1942 and it was a few weeks after that birthday that my parents got me up very early one morning together with my brother a year younger he was four and our baby sister who was an infant and they dressed us hurriedly and my brother and i were told to to wait in the living room while our parents did some last-minute packing in the bedroom and so my brother and i were just standing by the front window gazing out and suddenly We saw two soldiers marching up our driveway. They carried rifles with shiny bayonets on them. They stomped up the porch and with their fists began pounding on the front door. It was a terrifying sound. The whole house seemed to tremble with that pounding. My father came out of the bedroom and answered the door (laughs) and literally at gunpoint we were ordered out of our home. My father gave my brother and me small packages to carry. He hefted two heavy suitcases, and we followed him out onto the driveway, and we stood there waiting for our mother to come out. And when she finally came out, she had our baby sister in one arm and a huge duffel bag in the other, and tears were streaming down her cheeks. It, it It was a terrifying morning that I can never forget.
2: and And this is all having to do with so-called executive order nine zero six six, this is, uh, Roosevelt's executive order that gave the military broad powers to ban any citizen. Uh, from a 50 to 60-mile wide coastal area stretching from Washington State to California and extending inland uh, into southern Arizona. this year be, You're experiencing the beginning of the internment uh, of Japanese Americans uh, at this moment, right? That's correct. So you know, it might be worthwhile to just um, uh, dial back a little bit and set the scene a little bit more, and talk about who your family uh, was. Your mom was a U.S. citizen. Your, your dad wasn't, but he's and he was an Anglophile. Your your name your, you were named after <laughs> King George the Is that correct?
1: That's right. I was born in 1937, the year that King George VI was crowned. My father um, was born in Japan, a province called uh, Yamanashi at the foot of Mount Fuji. But he lost his mother, my grandmother, paternal grandmother, when he was uh, very young. And my widower grandfather decided he's going to uh, seek, seek new opportunities in the uh, the U.S. and so he came to San Francisco with his two boys. My father was the younger of the two boys, and so uh, um, my my father grew up in San Francisco. He was reared there, educated there, and he always considered himself a San Franciscan. And uh, he was very Americanized. He was he spoke English fluently, Japanese fluently, and. Uh, so we were Americans, but when Pearl Harbor was bombed, hysteria, fear of, uh, of uh, another bombing uh, on the West Coast would hit. And that fear, that hysteria swept all across this country. And we happened to look different from the rest of America. We, we happened to look just like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor. And so that hysteria, together with racism, combined to stampede even the President of the United States. And he signed, as you said, the executive order numbered 9066, which ordered all of us to be imprisoned with no charges. Mm
0: -hmm. There were
1: no charges, therefore no trial. Due process, the central pillar of our justice system, simply disappeared and the soldiers came up, came to our home and rounded us up together with a hundred and twenty thousand other Japanese Americans from the west coast and imprisoned us in ten barbed wire prison camps in some of the most hellish places, most isolated places in the United States. We were uh, uh, on February 19th, president roosevelt signed the executive order and the construction of the uh... barbara prison camps began but when we were rounded up the construction wasn't finished yet so we we were taken to uh... san anita racetrack mm-hmm. a glamorous racetrack where movie stars used to go uh, and uh, and uh, bet on horses uh... but that became a uh, assembly center was a term that they used there was a chain-length f- fence around this once glamorous uh... racetrack with concertina wires around at the top and armed u.s military men uh... were guarding over us it became a temporary internment camp where we were housed in horse stalls mm. We were herded over to the stable area, and each family of comparable size to ours, we, we were three children and two parents, five of us, and we were uh, assigned a horse stall, still pungent with the stink of ho- horse manure. Mm-hmm. But to five-year-old me, I thought it was fun to sleep where the horses sleep. Right. And we showered where the horses were washed outdoors, Men went first and we went with our father and my mother with the women's group later on. We were treated like animals.
2: You know, I want to back up and and just uh, let people hear uh, the beginnings of how that fear sounded. So you're going to hear actually the voice of Eleanor Roosevelt speaking to the nation in
0: 1941. I'm speaking to you tonight at a very serious moment in our history. The Cabinet is convening, and the leaders in Congress are meeting with the President. The State Department and Army and Navy officials have been with the President all afternoon. In fact, the Japanese ambassador was talking to the President at the very time that Japan's airships were bombing our citizens in Hawaii and the Philippines. By tomorrow morning, the members of Congress will have a full report and be ready for action. In the meantime, we, the people, are already prepared for action.
2: So the first thing that happened that day, President, uh, the same day that she's speaking, President Roosevelt signed a declaration that every adult Japanese citizen was considered an alien enemy uh, who, and who must abide by strict regulations, 8 p.m. curfew, couldn't travel more than five miles from home or work, couldn't get on an airplane of any kind, and assets, homes, farms, crops, farm equipment were eventually all seized by the government. Um, it, it, in... A kind of George Orwell style, George Takei, there was a bizarre argument that was made by a man who's actually con- gone down in history as kind of a champion of human rights, kind of a champion of the underdog, and that's uh, Earl Warren, who eventually became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. At the time, he's California's Attorney General, and he makes this remarkable claim that the reason to suspect Japanese citizens is because there was no reason Japanese to suspect Japanese
1: American them. citizens Japanese we American were Americans
2: citizens. Yes Japanese American citizens was because there was no reason to suspect them that was the reason to suspect them
1: Yes he made the statement we have no reports of sabotage or spying or fifth column activities by Japanese Americans and that that is ominous because we Japanese Americans are Inscrutable, that stereotyping word. And so it would be prudent to lock us up before we do anything. So the absence of evidence for this Attorney General, the top attorney in the state of California, was the evidence. The absence of evidence was the evidence. And that justified locking us up.
2: And and even before the locking up, when you start to talk about people that way, when you start to talk about a certain group of American citizens that way or any group of people who might be uh, on American soil that way, you begin to open them up. You you turn them into targets for harassment. I'm assuming that is something that happened to Japanese-American citizens after they were classified uh, as uh, alien enemies.
1: That's right. I mean, all the, here at the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles, we have all these photographs of ugly uh, uh, graffiti painted on walls. Japs keep on moving. Japs, uh, you don't belong here. Uh, Japs go home. And that's uh, kind of an echo that we hear today of uh, go home or lock her up. Mm -hmm. The uh, slogan was, Lock up the Japs. So we keep repeating history. And I wrote my autobiography in 1994 with this uh, chapter of American history as uh, the beginning of my autobiography. But still, to this day, I'm confronted by people that I consider... uh, well-read, well-informed people. When I tell them about my my childhood imprisonment, they're shocked. Mm-hmm. And I'm shocked that they're shocked because I've been taught, uh, lecturing at universities all across the country. We've uh, put on a musical on uh, Broadway about uh, the imprisonment of Japanese Americans. Allegiance, yeah. Allegiance and, the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Allegiance and the, uh, the tragedy of that story. And I thought, the best way, perhaps, would to reach uh, or hope for the future of America is to make it a comic strip. Mm-hmm. I, I read comic books, and and I still remember some of the stories that I read. And I thought, if we reach the young reader, the teenagers, and the young uh, American readers, and they, you know, that's at that age when you're absorbing in information and you keep it for the rest of your lives then we will have another generation of Americans but this time informed on the dark chapters of American history and if we have enough Americans in the future that know this history hopefully it won't repeat itself but alas we are repeating yeah, it, it already is. now.
2: Right. And, and I want to play a clip here that'll sort of give you a sense of what George Takei is saying uh, about how some of the rhetoric uh, of 1941 uh, sounded uh, an awful lot like things that we hear today. This is from news footage recorded three months before the opening uh, of the American internment camps for Japanese American citizens.
0: Frankly, my view is, and I include the German so called. In what I have to say about the Japanese, we ought to exterminate both of them. There's no place for either of those races in the world today. What do you think of the Japs, the Japanese people? Well, do I hate, hate them. them. No, I don't hate them. There must be a good many people in Japan who don't believe and don't support this war. Do you think they are racially treacherous? Pin up all the Japanese in this country so they can to do us in the dirt. Not to, just through the duration of the war, but all of them we get, we we'll just pin them up and keep them. Keep them never of give anybody else any of
2: so George Takei echoes of today in some of those comments uh, in the way that people uh, were depicted. You know, I wanna I wanna hone in on something you said. You talk about how surprised you are when you find out that Americans just don't know this, don't know that you were at the age of five imprisoned uh, uh, along with so many other uh, Japanese Americans. You know, the thing that I've been finding lately, and I don't know if you've run into this or not, but as the conversation has heated up uh, about the uh, facilities along the border where families are being separated, families are being held in squalid conditions, um, you know, when I bring up the American internment of Japanese Americans, I bring it up the way I assumed 100% of, a, of Americans did, as an incredible article of shame. But I've actually run into people on social media and elsewhere who instead cited as kind of a benign precedent, saying, oh yeah, we can do this, we did it in 1941 with the Japanese Americans, mm-hmm. as if that made it okay that it had been done before. Have you, have you run into that particular twist
1: on history? Well, social media has become rampant with to- trolls who uh, are totally mindless, and I think they're, 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 this, there seems to be a streak of evil in them. I can't believe intelligent people could say and do the kind of things that they uh, say on uh, social media. Uh, yes, uh, it, uh, I've... Come across all of that uh, uh, still today. Uh, they say, you know, well, uh, my uh, father uh, fought in the Pacific Theater, and uh, the the Japs uh, did this and that. Well, we were Americans. I mean, they just can't draw that distinction. I mean, there, there are people, you know, America. The United States is a diverse country with people that, that have come from all over the world. All of us are descendants of uh, immigrants at, at one point or another. My grandparents were the ones that came to uh, uh, the United States. And whether they came from uh, uh, Italy or uh, uh, Norway or uh, uh, Latin America, we're all from uh, the uh, from somewhere else in the world, and that's our strength as Americans. Our diversity coming together, and if we can work together as a people, united as a team, and 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 taking advantage of our diversity, then we can be the ideal of what uh, uh, our founding fathers uh, imagined. But. Huh. We are fallible human beings.
2: I, I want to tell people a little bit more about... Uh, how these camps were depicted to Americans and then have uh, George Takei talk a little bit about what the reality of those camps are. So uh, take a quick uh, break and a deep breath. Uh, we're going to come back with George Takei to talk a little bit more uh, uh, about some of the stories contained in his newly released graphic memoir, They Called Us. In- he
1: said the U.S. is looking for spies So we have to live in a place called Manzanar, Where a lot of Japanese people are Stop it, don't look at the gunmen you don't want to get your soldiers wondering if you're gonna run or not Cause if you run then you might get shot Other than that, try not to think about it Try not to worry about it, being so crowded But someday
2: we'll get out, someday, someday Yeah, soon as war broke out, so the FBI came
0: and they just come to the house and
2: We're back. We're talking to George Takei. Uh, you probably know him for his role as Lieutenant Sulu on the original Star Trek, as well as a, being a longtime human rights activist and spokesperson. He's got a new book out now. It's a graphic memoir uh, of his uh, childhood. It's called "They Called Us Enemy." In a little while, too, he'll tell us about a new series coming on on AMC that also talks about the American internment of Japanese Americans. Before we come back with George Takei, uh, I want to play a. Clip from a 1942 Office of War Information, Motion Picture Bureau propaganda film designated, uh, designed, excuse me, to alleviate concerns some Americans were having about how the Japanese Americans were being relocated. So in this film you see, in this clip, you, you would see buses full of smiling Japanese families being driven to their happy new homes in these various camps. You see children playing, classes are being taught, men are working, everything is just Wonderful. Here's what that sounded like.
0: Now they were taken to racetracks and fairgrounds where the army almost overnight had built assembly centers. Santa Anita Racetrack, for example, suddenly became a community of about 17,000 persons. Here they would build schools, educate their children, held church services, issued their own newspaper, organized nursery schools, and some made camouflage nets for the United States Army. At weekly community meetings, citations were given to the block leaders who had worked most diligently now this brief picture is actually the prologue to a story that is yet to be told the full story will begin to unfold when circumstances permit the loyal american citizens once again to enjoy the freedom we in this country cherish and when the disloyal have left this country for good in the meantime we are setting a standard for the rest of the world in the treatment of people who may have loyalties to an enemy nation We are protecting ourselves without violating the principles of Christian decency.
2: So, uh, George Takei, you already talked about Santa Anita, which is mentioned in that clip that you were basically living in horse stalls and taking showers in the horse paddock. But um, much like what we're hearing along the border these days, this is not a sanitary way for people to be uh, living. It's uh, much easier for sickness to spread in an environment like that. So what happened to your family? Did,
1: did you guys get sick? As a matter of fact, I do remember getting sick, but um, we were in horse stalls, and my parents had to go for some uh, meeting or whatever, and so they had our neighbor lady next in the next stall. Uh, she, All she uh, had to do was uh, peer over the uh, partition, and she would say, Georgie, are you all right? And I, I would say, I, I'm fine, thank you. And she would uh, uh, sit down on her cot and do whatever she was doing. It was, uh, and my baby sister got sick too. And I remember uh, I was well by then. Uh, the uh, medicine was dis- dispensed from a, uh, a little kind of a ticket box uh, in the middle of the uh, uh, st- stable area. And uh, since my father was someplace else, my mother would take my brother and me. And uh, my uh, sick baby sister to that uh, to get ticket office and uh, and get the medicine for her. So yes, uh, illness was rampant at uh, San Anita.
2: Now, Santa Anita was intended to be uh, temporary. Your next stop was in Arkansas. And as I understand it, you were, all of you were tagged like cattle with these little pieces of paper to keep track of who you were and then loaded onto trains. And maybe you can pick up the story there about your, your travel from Santa Anita to this new camp in Arkansas.
1: That's correct. Uh, we we were uh, tagged we had to wear the tag all the time and uh, uh, we were put on trains with armed guards sentries at both ends of each car as if uh, we were criminals uh, they treated us like animals or on the train like criminals and uh, occasion you know they'd be a, a boring job for them so uh, you know they had to uh, maintain that uh, parade rest uh, position but they would occasionally move and and thump their uh, rifle on the floor uh, and we got used to it and my father told us that we were going on a long vacation and so i thought everybody went on vacation to a place called arkansas uh, with armed escorts but when uh, whenever we reached a town on the way then the the, uh, shade had to be drawn. We were not to be seen. But uh, I remember, uh, you know, I was a curious kid and I was right by the window. And so uh, when uh, my mother wasn't looking, I would shoved the shade up a little bit and to look outside because I heard wonderful sounds uh, of uh, trolleys being uh, uh, rolled across or people talking and laughing. But whenever uh, we got caught, my mother would slam the, uh, the uh, shade down so that the guards wouldn't catch us. Uh, but I thought this was normal. I thought this was the way people went on vacations. And uh, it was, uh, what did my mother always chant? Uh, four days and three nights. Four days and three nights uh, to get to the camp. And when we arrived at the camp, the t- train tracks ran lo- right alongside the barbed wire fence. And there were already people there. And my mother recognized a few people, and she waved at them. And uh, the uh, guards were uh, uh, shouting out the name of the camp, which was Rower, R-O-H-W-E-R. But to me, it sounded like, Roar! Roar! I thought they were pretending to be lions. And mm. I thought, isn't that silly? These <laughs> guards roaring like lions. Uh, so it was um, a parallel uh, experience that I had, uh, totally different from that of my parents. The same experience, but uh, parallel experiences. And may I read one part uh, which sure. uh, captures that uh Difference. <clears throat> My bright, sharp memories are of joyful times of games, play, and discoveries. Memory is a wily keeper of the past, usually dependable, but at times deceptive. Childhood memories are especially slippery, sweet, and so full of joy. They can often be a misrendering of the truth. For a child, that sweetness, out of context and intensely subjective, remains forever real. I know that I will always be haunted by the larger, vaguely remembered reality of the circumstances surrounding my childhood. This was written originally for my autobiography, which was uh, published in 1994, but It's, uh, I share it again in this graphic memoir where we tell the story of my childhood uh, internment, uh, imprisonment, from the eyes of uh, an absolutely irresistibly adorable (laughs) five-year-old me. And that's thanks to uh, Harmony Becker, a very gifted manga artist. Uh, She captures emotions on a face with a dot and the s- swoop of a line or a squiggle here. It, it's uh, absolutely magical what she's able to do with her drawing.
2: Well, in the interest of time, I'm going to leap over a lot of Camp Rower, and I'm going to get take us to 1943 when President Roosevelt begins allowing some Japanese-American citizens to enlist in the army. But a very fateful questionnaire was issued to all the interned Japanese-American citizens asking uh, uh, in particular two questions that would very much affect their destinies. The the questions are often, in retrospect, regarded as somewhat confusing, ambiguous, uh, difficult to answer one way or another. But they were yes and no questions. Um, Question 27 asked if Japanese-American men were willing to serve on combat duty. No,
1: everyone, not just men. Everyone everyone over the age of 17, man or woman, 17 or 87.
2: Um, if they if they would be willing to serve in other ways just serving in the women's army auxiliary corps all that all that kind of stuff and i'll have you uh, summarize what question 28 uh, said george dekay
1: question 28 was one sentence with two opposite ideas uh, i'm going to paraphrase but the, this is the essence of uh, the two uh, uh, ideas in one sentence. It asked, will you swear your loyalty to the United States of America and forswear your loyalty to the Emperor of Japan? The Emperor of Japan. We're Americans. My mother was born in Sacramento, California. My father was born in Japan, but he was brought to San Francisco as a child, and he uh, always uh, considered himself a San Franciscan. And we never had a loyalty to the Emperor, but the government assumed, presumed, that we had an inborn racial loyalty to the Emperor, which was insulting. So if you answered no, meaning I don't have a loyalty to the Emperor to forswear, that no applied to the first part of the very same sentence. Will you swear your loyalty to the United States? If you answered yes, meaning I do swear my loyalty to the United States, then that yes applied to the second part of that sentence meant that you were confessing that you had been loyal to the Emperor and now were prepared to forswear that loyalty and repledge lo- your loyalty to the Emperor of Japan. This was an ignorant question that the Japanese American took as deeply offensive insulting.
2: So your parents answered no because of that? It was preposterous. And the consequences were were huge. Uh, they it was. they were reclassified as disloyals. Uh, your family was transferred to a much more militarized camp in California, uh, a notorious place called the Tool Lake Relocation Center. You know We've avoided, because it's so controversial, the term concentration camp in this conversation so far, but it's not much of a stretch to call Tool Lake uh, a concentration camp. This was a no. highly militarized facility where you were truly treated as enemies at this point.
1: Let me define the word concentration camp according to the dictionary. It's the concentrated imprisonment of people that have in common a heritage or race or culture or faith for political purposes. That's the definition of a concentration camp. And so all 10 of the prison camps uh, that we were imprisoned in, were concentration camps. People conflate that with the uh, th- that word with the uh, Jewish Holocaust in Europe. That is a whole different kind of camp. They were concentrated, not for political purposes, but the intent was a systematic program of, of a campaign of annihilation of a people. They were death camps. They were extermination camps. Concentration camp becomes almost a euphemism when used in the context of the Holocaust. We Japanese Americans were imprisoned in concentration camps. But to really uh, underscore the, uh, the militarized nature of uh, Tule Lake, the segregation camp for disloyals. It had three layers of uh, barboire fences and a half a dozen tanks patrolling the perimeter to intimidate people who were goaded into outrage by, you know, the series of outrages and the loyalty questionnaire coming a year into imprisonment was really beyond uh, rationality because... Right after Pearl Harbor, young Japanese Americans, like almost all young Americans, rushed to their recruitment centers to volunteer to serve in the U.S. military. This was answered with a denial. They were denied military service and categorized as enemy aliens, and then imprisoned. Imprisoned for a year until the government realized that that there's a wartime manpower shortage and here were all these young people that they could have had but had uh, they had uh, been classified as enemy aliens how to justify drafting people out of a barbed wire prison camp their solution was this this ill put together loyalty questionnaire and there were thousands of young young people who were so determined to prove their loyalty that they bit the bullet, swallowed that ugly taste, and answered the questions as they thought the government wanted them to. And they answered with yeses to those two offensive questions, and they uh, went to fight in the military. They were put into a segregated, all-Japanese-American unit and sent to uh, the battlefields of Europe. And there, they were literally used like cannon fodder, but they fought with incredible courage and, indeed, heroism. And they sustained the highest combat casualty rate of any unit of its comparable size. When the war ended, they came back to the United States as the single most decorated unit of the entire war, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, the segregated all-Japanese-American unit. And they were welcomed back on the White House lawn by President Harry Truman, who said to them, you fought not only the enemy, but prejudice, and you won. But when the loyalty questionnaire came down, There were also another kind of heroes. They were the young men who said, I am an American, and I will fight for my country, but I will fight as an American. If I can report to my hometown draft board with my family back home, I would be like any American. I would have something to fight for. I will fight as an American, but I will not go as an internee leaving my family in imprisonment to put on the same uniform as that of the guards imprisoning my family I will fight as an American now I think these people were courageous people to take on the might of, of the entire United States but they were also principled people and very American young men and for that for that position that they uh, uh, stood on, they were tried for draft evasion, found guilty, and transferred to Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary, where they fought on a different battlefield behind those tall penitentiary concrete walls. But they stood strong and proud as Americans against all the guff that they had to put up with uh, and assaults on them in the uh, Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. So there are these two stories, uh, equally heroic. One fighting uh, for this country on those battlefields and sacrificing so much, and the other fighting behind federal penitentiary walls for the very principle of what America must stand for. So... This is a story uh, of uh, the Japanese-American heroism, one behind penitentiary walls and other on European battlefields.
2: We're talking right now to George Takei. He has a new graphic novel-style memoir out about uh, his childhood uh, in an American internment camp for Japanese-Americans. You know him, of course, from Star Trek. Uh, He'll be back after this. Today's show was essentially a special project entirely put on the air by producer Josh Nilea. The part of Bill Curry was played by William Shatner, we think we know what tomorrow's show is. I'm going to be honest with you, okay? I'm taping this, I don't know, it's like a week back in time. This is a quantum experience I'm having right now. So I think I know what tomorrow's show is. I'm not 100% sure. I wouldn't want to lie to you. So let's just get back to our interview with George Takei. Once again, George Takei, you knew him. You loved him as Sulu on Star Trek. Uh, he's a lot more than that. He's become an internet activist. Uh, and right now he has a memoir out in graphics novel form about his childhood, which was spent in American internment camps for Japanese Americans during World War II. Let's get back to that conversation. You, George Takei, and your family spent two years at Tula Lake, which is was notorious for, yes, all that barbed wire, but also really pretty, bad, pretty squalid living conditions, inadequate medical care, bad food. Uh, this is not uh, a, a place to be. Uh, and eventually the Supreme Court uh, forced the closure uh, of these camps. And maybe you can just say— what was your family's mindset, your parents' mindset, your parents who had been patriotic citizens of the United States? They had a successful dry-cleaning business when this all started. As you say, your mother born here, your father comes here at an early age. Uh, his family are Anglophiles enough to name him after King George VI. Um, how did, did, did that spirit survive this kind of maltreatment for so many years?
1: It was a series of outrages by the United States government. At the uh, Tugger Lake camp, young men who had initially volunteered to fight for this country had by this time now become radicalized. And their attitude was, all right, you're going to consider us the enemy and treat us this way and demand that kind of loyalty questionnaire. We will and and they had answered no no to that. They said we're going to show you what kind of enemy you, you have to put up with. We will become your uh, the enemy that you imagine us to be, and they became uh, very physically activist. They uh, jogged around uh, the block with the um, a headband wrapped around their head with the uh, Japanese military. Um, flag the rising sun with the rays on it and they used the uh, Japanese cadence instead of up two three four they they would go washoi 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 and I remember waking up at lake in the morning to that cadence and uh, then of course the the jeeps would come roaring in to break it up and they were scattered into the uh, barracks and so it was a very intense uh, militarized uh, environment both uh, on the part of the guards as well as the uh, internees and Congress became very uh, frustrated with that and so they said alright if you're going to be so Japanese then we're going to give you the right to re- renounce your citizenship they were all you know, American born and so they passed the uh, bill that, that's called the denaturalization bill which permitted American citizens to renounce their citizenship during wartime in a barbed wire prison camp, and particularly a prison camp with three layers of barbed wire fences and uh, intimidating tanks uh, patrolling the perimeter. That in itself is an outrageously un-American act. And so these radicals Uh, acted on it, and they renounced their citizenship. But that was only a few, and Congress wanted more people to renounce. And so, to really intimidate the people in prison at Tule Lake, they announced that in 1944, when the war was still raging, they're going to close down Tule Lake. They're going to let out all of the internees. There were rednecks taking pot shots at white people uh, driving in to visit us in the internment camps. What's going to happen when we, you know, the irony of uh, the barbed wire fence was, yes, that that confined us, but it also protected us from the radicals outside. And when the government threatened to let us out, no uh, a barbed wire fence and we were going to be open to uh, any kind of uh, hate out there it was terrifying and the radicals then campaigned to say if we get enough people to renounce their citizenship then we, uh, we can force the government to keep Tulane Lake uh, operating mm. and out of fear and in an effort to protect the family my mother did that incredible thing of renouncing her American citizenship and kept, helped keep Two Lake up and protecting us. But then when the war ended, that renunciation came back to bite us like with, with a vengeance. Mm. My mother's name was on the list of a ship sailing for japan to deport the renunciants my mother was born in sacramento california if they were going to deport her that's the place that they should have sent her her to but she was going to send her and we were going to go with her i mean we're going to be a family we were going to be sent to a war-torn devastated country the people there are are scrambling in the ruins to find food or clothing, we were going to be sent there. I don't know what I would have turned out to be. I I would have been definitely a a different person if uh, we were on that ship.
2: You know, before we run out of time, there's just, first of all, I want to make sure we mention George Takei, this uh, uh, 10-episode dramatization that's coming out on AMC. Uh, Tell us what it's called again.
1: It's called the terror infamy, infamy taken from the uh, word that he used to characterize Japan's bombing of Pearl Harbor. But infamy in this case is four years of infamy that President Roosevelt inflicted on us.
2: You know, I want to just ask you one last question about sort of who you did become. As you said, had all that happened, you would have become a different person. Uh, you've become obviously passionately political. You're still passionately political on a daily basis. But I also just want to mention that, OK, 1966, I'm this dopey seventh grader watching Star Trek. You're probably the first Japanese person, person of Japanese ancestry, that I see on TV who's not in a war movie. I mean, you know, in terms of representation uh, of Japanese people, Japanese American people, you know, I don't think there was much other than as former enemies and suddenly here we are confronted with this idealistic utopian vision of the future where kind of a multiracial, multinational, uh, multi-planetary uh, group w- would work together for betterment. Uh, you must be somewhat proud of the fact that in a way, you know, you, you stood in for a, a lot of people who had never been so positively represented.
1: I am proud of that, very proud of that, and I'm grateful to Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, who put together that vision of his uh, infinite diversity in infinite comb- combinations and to envision our human future as one where our diversity, working together, is our strength. The diversity is, is a strength and our working together in unison is our power. And so I'm very grateful to Gene Roddenberry for have, uh, have cast me in uh, that role.
2: So we've been talking to George Takei. The graphic memoir, which is already leaping up the bestseller uh, list of the New York Times, the graphic memoir is called They Called Us Enemy. It has been an honor and a privilege uh, to talk to you, sir. And uh, uh, if you'll just uh, grant me this one wish, Mr. Sulu, set a course for the next break.
1: Aye, aye, sir. Warp 3. <laughs> <laughs> thank and you And so may much. you live long and <laughs> prosper. <laughs> thank, thank you so much, George Takei. It's my pleasure. Thank you.
2: So it turns out that the break comes at the end of the show. It's a break with our show. Uh, but we've had a great time with George Takei. Thanks very much to Josh Nilea, the producer who set this whole thing up. And one of my childhood dreams has been fulfilled. How many days can you say that? Uh, come back tomorrow for whatever it is we're doing.
0: And I am not a criminal,
1: but this wire fence, is real.